Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the quiet small town of Palatka was once a popular tourist destination, serving as a transportation hub for railroads and steamboat traffic on the St. John's River. She said the river was just like a highway. She said any direction you look, there were boats coming and going to the docks at Palatka bringing tourists and cargo. We'll discuss the autobiography of Seminole War veteran and Peace River Valley pioneer F.C.M. Bogus. This original typewritten manuscript is a fascinating look at someone who was involved in these major, really world-changing events. And we'll talk about the Miami Herald women's pages. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The small town of Palatka, Florida is about 60 miles south of Jacksonville, 45 miles east of Gainesville, and 29 miles southwest of St. Augustine. It's the home of St. John's River State College and the Florida School of the Arts, headquarters of the St. John's River Water Management District, and the site of Ravine Gardens State Park. A quiet little town today, Palatka has a rich and colorful history. Larry Beaton is historian of the Putnam County Historical Society. His family ties to Palatka go back to the mid-19th century. Well, I'm a uh, fifth generation on my mother's side, born and raised in Palatka. My great-great-grandfather was Robert Raymond Reed, who was the son of the fourth territorial governor, Robert Raymond Reed. And uh, he came here to Palatka in uh, the early 1850s. So he was one of the pioneer families that was here in Palatka at the time. So our family has uh, been here. And my grandmother, my mother's mother, lived to be almost 101 years old. And we lived with her when we were growing up. And so we didn't have a lot of money. And my grandmother would entertain me and my brother and sister by telling us stories about how she remembered Palatka as a little girl, remembering the steamboats, uh, bringing passengers and cargo to Palatka. The thing that uh, I always remember her saying was she remembered walking along the riverfront with her mother and Uh, She said the river was just like a highway. She said any direction you look, there were boats coming and going to the docks at Palatka bringing tourists and cargo. The Putnam Historic Museum is a small building but is full of fascinating artifacts detailing Palatka's long history. One exhibit shows how Native Americans were the first inhabitants of Palatka as documented by naturalist William Bartram in 1774. The British controlled Florida from 1763 to 1783. During that period, an Englishman named Dennis Roll established a settlement called Rollstown in what is now East Palatka. When the Spanish regained control of Florida in 1783, Roll abandoned his settlement. 
Florida became a United States territory in 1821. It was during this period that Palatka developed as an active port community on the St. Johns River. The Second Seminole War of the 1830s caused problems for Palatka as buildings were attacked and burned. In 1838, the U.S. Army established Fort Shannon to protect Palatka. The Putnam Historic Museum is one of the only original Army buildings from the Second Seminole War still in existence. This is what has been identified as the officer's quarters for Fort Shannon. Um, the building originally was down on the riverfront, and we acquired the Putnam County Historical Society and the city of Palatka acquired the building in 1984 and had it moved to the site here next to the Bronson Mulholland House. Florida became a state in 1845, supporting growth in Palatka. In 1849, Palatka was named Putnam County seat, and it was incorporated as a town in 1853. Putnam Historic Museum displays reflect that growth. Larry Beaton. There's some pieces of furniture in here that came out of the um, Larimer Library. That library was, was gifted to the city of Palatka by the Mellon family, the millionaires from New York. They had a winter home here, and uh, the library was built by the Mellon family uh, in memory of one of the Mellon's wives. And uh, so that now is a cultural art center here in Palatka, and we have some of the pieces of furniture that came out of it when it was originally a library. We also, if you notice, we have some taxidermy here also. One of the things that the tourists were doing when they were first coming to this area in the, in the 1870s and 80s, they wanted a souvenir to be able to take back north with them. And originally, they would kill a lot of the wildlife, unfortunately, and would have, there were taxidermy shops here in Palatka that would have it mounted in unusual uh, displays. There's a display in the other room that's called Frogs at Play, and it's a set of, of frogs that had been mounted in a display that was one of the taxidermy works that was done as a souvenir. The Civil War interrupted Palatka's prosperity, but the town continued growing after the war in the 1870s and 1880s. So again, you had more people that were starting to move to this area. Judge Bronson had been appointed the federal district judge for East Florida, where the capital was in St. Augustine, and he had traveled here to Palatka to be able to um, handle some civil cases. Uh, and in the process of doing that, he kind of fell in love with the area along the river. So as part of his compensation for handling some of the civil cases here, he asked for 10 acres of land on the north side of Palatka, and he called this Sunny Point. And he ended up building a house here and moving his family from St. Augustine to Palatka, and he had 10 acres of orange groves planted west of the house. Larry Beaton explains that Palatka was a popular tourist destination, particularly for those seeking health benefits from Florida's climate. There was a gentleman by the name of Hubbard Hart that uh, came to this area, and he originally started a stagecoach line. He was delivering the United States mail, and uh, then he got into the idea of having uh, boats that would would take the tourists up the Okawaha River to Silver Springs. Uh, he had discovered Silver Springs on one of his stagecoach routes as a watering stop for his horses, and he realized it was such a beautiful area. So Hart built a hotel here in Palatka called the Putnam House, so the tourists coming from the north would have a place to stay. And then they, would, they had these specially built boats that were narrow 
uh, boats to be able to navigate the Ocklawaha because it's such a, you know, a narrow snake-like river, and uh, also shallow draft boats. And these special boats would, would leave the docks here in Palatka and take the tourists up the Alcohaha to Silver Springs. And I mentioned earlier about the taxidermy. In the early years of the tours, they would actually pass guns out to the tourists and they'd kind of blast their way away as they went up the Alcohaha. They, uh, there were some articles that were done in Harper's Magazine that described as the boats would go around sharp turns in the river that there were so many tropical birds flying up, it would blacken the sun. But by the 1880s, it was rare to see that many birds. And they actually realized in that time that they were putting themselves out of business by allowing the tourists to, uh, to kill the wildlife on the river. So you find photographs later in the 1880s where there's a group of tourists in their finest clothes that they brought from the north posing in front of one of the taxiderma shops holding guns, but they're actually wooden guns just for the picture. And then they'll have a big stuffed alligator out front to show what they, what they had killed, which actually was something they used over and over again. By the 1880s, Palatka was a transportation hub for railroad lines and steamboat traffic on the St. Johns River. So you find in uh, 1881, the Florida Southern Railroad coming here and later the Jacksonville, Tampa and Key West Railroad. At one time, there were five railroads that were coming to Palatka. Two of them had their maintenance shops here, including round tables and other, other maintenance facilities for the Florida Southern and the Jacksonville, Tampa and Key West Railroad, which of course, Jacksonville, Tampa, and Key West later became CSX after quite a few changes over the years. Not only wars threatened Palatka's prosperity, in 1884, a fire nearly destroyed the town. Historian Larry Beaton. The town was celebrating the election of Grover Cleveland as president, the first Democratic president since the Civil War. There were bonfires in the street downtown, and a reporter came out of one of the celebrations that was taking place at one of the large hotels and noticed a glow coming up from a building near the riverfront, and the fire alarm went out. But, it, of course, in those days, it was mostly all wooden construction, and the fire basically moved from one building to the next and destroyed about 50 businesses in, in the downtown area. But thank goodness there were no fatalities. There was one horse that died. And uh, one of the property owners had taken his valuables and put them in a rowboat and gone out into the river. But then he had brands from the fire fall on the boat, set it on fire. So he had to jump overboard and swim for his life. In addition to tourism, lumber became a huge industry in Palatka in the late 19th century. In 1893, the Wilson Cypress Company was established. There had been a, another Cypress company here called the Tillman Mill, and the Wilsons had come here to Florida from the Michigan area and were looking at the huge cypress trees. They actually took one of the tours up the Okawaha River, not to see the beauty, but to check out the trees. So uh, the Wilsons ended up buying the, the saws of the, of the Tillman Mill and moved just a few blocks down the street and built a mill, which eventually became the second largest cypress mill in the world. As the 20th century approached, Palatka began losing its stature as a thriving city. One contributing factor was the big freeze of 1894-95, which devastated citrus and other crops. 
this area was was heavily dependent on the citrus industry. And I would say that the, the fire and the great freezes and also the railroads taking people further south and opening up the interior of Florida was kind of the beginning of the end of Palatka being a major tourist destination. Uh, people no longer were stopping in this area because they realized that there were still hard freezes in this part of Florida and they had easy transportation or easier transportation to get to uh, central and south Florida with the railroads. Today, Palatka has a quaint historic ambiance with many historic buildings preserved and restored in two nationally designated historic districts. Directly adjacent to the Putnam Historic Museum is a house museum, the Bronson Mulholland House. I mentioned earlier about Judge Bronson coming here and building the house. He was actually ill when he came here and only lived one year in the house, but got to see one of his two daughters married in the house. The second was married less than a year after he passed away. Mrs. Bronson stayed in the house. The Bronsons were from upper state New York, and she stayed in the house until the outbreak of the Civil War and then when the war uh, was approaching, she packed up all her belongings and went back to, to Upper State New York. The house sat empty during the Civil War. It was used by the Confederates as a lookout for Union gunboats. And later, Palatka was occupied by 500 black Union soldiers, and they used the house as a barracks. Uh, after the war, a friend of Mrs. Bronson, who was a member of the Freedmen's Union, she asked her if she could use the house as a school. So in 1866, the house was opened as a school for the children of freed slaves, and it operated for two years as a school. Uh, at the height of the school, there were 80 black children that attended and three white children that attended the school. Uh, Charlotte Henry, who opened the school, fell in love with the house. She met a gentleman who actually had come here as a tourist. They fell in love. They purchased the house, and they did major restorations to the house. Um, they, uh, his name was uh, Nathaniel White, and uh, so it was referred to by people in Palak as the White House. And uh, so um, later, uh, Mr. White started having some health problems. They had a nurse by the name of Mary Mahullen that they hired who traveled with them. Mary was very intelligent woman. She actually almost had become a physician. And after Mr. White passed away, Mrs. White kept uh, Mary on as a companion, and she gifted her the house in her will, so Mary inherited the house. Mary later hired a Cuban orphan, and she brought her younger sister along with her. When the older sister uh, ended up getting married, the younger sister stayed with Mary, and the younger sister was later adopted by Mary, sent to school. She became a school teacher and ended up with the house after, after Mary uh, passed away. And so she kept the house for a period of time. She was teaching in Jacksonville. She eventually moved to Jacksonville. The house, um, after it was sold, became a rooming house with uh, 14 rooms, 14 different apartments for rent. It gradually deteriorated in condition over the years, and uh, it was not being well-maintained, and the property, the last property owner was not paying the taxes, so the city of Palatka picked the house up for taxes. Uh, the city uh, planned to demolish the house and build a playground at the site, but that's how the Putnam County Historical Society was formed, was to save the house from destruction. So now the house, uh, the city restored the house through a federal grant, 
and now the house is a partnership between the city of Platt and the Putnam County Historical Society, and it's it's been open for tours since uh, 1977. Larry Beaton is historian of the Putnam County Historical Society in Palatka. I was born in a small town And I can breathe in a small town This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing. F.C.M. Bogus participated in four wars, including the Third Seminole War. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, F.C.M. Bogus was also a pioneer of Southwest Florida. What do we know about him? Well, Francis Calvin Morgan Boggess was born in Huntsville, Alabama, we believe in 1833, although there's some argument as to his actual birth year. It's possible he was born sometime around 1820. His grandfather, we do know, uh, was originally from France and actually fought with Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. So his grandfather was a prominent soldier. So as early as, as 13, he may have been a little bit older, Bogus had finished school and decided he was going to join the army. And he uh, joined up an Alabama volunteer regiment to go and fight with the U.S. Army in Mexico. So he was uh, part of the Mexican campaign. He didn't really see too much action, according to his autobiography, but he got his first taste of the life of a soldier. And from uh, what we can tell from this early experience, he really enjoyed and, and took to that life. Uh, he made it back to Mobile in, 18, in the late 1840s, and it was when he was in Mobile, he was kind of having trouble finding work, as was the case with a lot of Mexican War veterans. So he signed on with the Lopez expedition to Cuba. Now, Lopez was originally from Cuba, but most of his property had been confiscated by the Spanish authorities, and he was sent and, and exiled to the United States. So uh, Colonel Lopez was uh, amassing a large army to try and overthrow the Spanish colonial government in Havana and throughout the island of Cuba. So uh, Bogus, along with about 600 men, made their way to Cuba, uh, but within a few days, the expedition failed. Bogus was fortunate enough to get on one of the uh, refugee ships and then made his way to Key West. Key West was the closest port that they could get into. Now, at the time, it's interesting because the U.S. government did not support these types of filibuster expeditions. So uh, Bogus was afraid that the U.S. government was going to come after him, as were many of the veterans of this campaign. So he uh, eventually found a, a small ship that took him up the west coast of Florida to Tampa, and that was his first taste of Florida. So Bogus came to Florida in late 1850, early 1851, and it kind of changed his perspective because he spent the rest of his life living in and around southwest Florida. Now, as I mentioned, he participated in the Third Seminole War, but in Bogus's autobiography, he also discusses his role in the American Civil War. 
Yeah, that's correct. In fact, his autobiography is entitled A Veteran of Four Wars. So as I mentioned earlier, he was, as a young boy, part of the Mexican campaign, was then involved in this failed Cuban liberation movement. Uh, And then in the mid-1850s, now living in Florida, he became part of the early statehood, late territorial period, southwest kind of Florida scene. So he was one of these early pioneers, and he got to know a lot of other pioneers and began working in the cattle industry. He was a, a farmer. He worked as a sailor furrying supplies from Key West up the southwest coast of Florida. But in the mid-1850s, uh, the th- what we now know as the, the Third Seminole War sort of began. Uh, now, the Second Seminole War had ended a few years earlier, and many of the Seminole Indians were living in the southernmost part of the peninsula, but they were having a lot of run-ins. There were a lot of violent altercations with some of these white settlers, including Bogus himself. Now, he uh, joined up with a Florida militia regiment in 1856 and actually fought a number of skirmishes with the uh, Seminole Indians. The most famous was a skirmish that actually he led called the Battle of Bowlegs Creek that resulted in about 30 Seminole Indians killed. Now, he served the remainder of the war. He, he mustered out in about 1858. But shortly after, as you mentioned, the Civil War broke out. And uh, of course, Florida uh, seceded from the Union, was the third state to secede. And uh, Bogus was kind of wrapped up in yet another war. What's interesting, however, is that Bogus was a unionist. He was not in support of Florida seceding from the Union. Now, it's not to say that he was an abolitionist. He did support slavery. And in fact, he uh, worked in uh, his early years back in Alabama as an overseer in a plantation. But he wanted to settle these matters while still staying within the Union. Uh, He had fought for the U.S. Army during the Mexican War and felt like they didn't need to secede. So what he did throughout at least the first part of the year, he kind of tried to evade conscription from both the federal forces and the Confederate forces. But unfortunately, they caught up with him. And he talks a lot about the war within the war in Southwest Florida, meaning that many of these early pioneers, they were more focused on just surviving. They wanted to keep their cattle. They wanted to keep their plantations. They just didn't want to get involved in this war. But unfortunately, uh, he was impressed into uh, Confederate service. And, and he did serve in the Confederate Army throughout the rest of the war, spent some time in Brooksville, was in Tallahassee for a short amount of time, but he never actually left the state. And as he said in his autobiography, he was fortunate that and he never had to fire a shot. So he, he spent uh, the Civil War uh, living uh, in and around his plantation, but he did have to move his family from Fort Meade down to, uh, to Fort Ogden. Now you have here a, a very old typewritten manuscript of Bogus's autobiography. Was it ever published? It was. It was originally published in, in 1900. Now, Bogus, like I said earlier, we don't really know uh, when he was born. His his grave marker says he was born in 1820. According to his autobiography, he was born in 1833. But we do know that he died in the early 20th century, 1902 or 1903. So uh, he was either in his early 70s or, or possibly in his 80s. So he was of advanced days by the time that he probably sat down and compiled these memoirs. We don't know what the publication history was or really how many copies were sold, but this original typewritten manuscript is a fascinating look at someone who was involved in these major, really world-changing events from the perspective of a pioneer who settled here in Southwest Florida. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The answer, my friend, is blowing This is Florida Frontiers. Marie Anderson was an innovator of what used to be called the women's pages at the Miami Herald newspaper. 
Holly Baker is a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida and has this report. The women's pages of newspapers started in the 1880s at a time when they were beginning different sections of newspapers. That's also when the sports page was created. It was part to sell advertising for products for women, but the upside from a labor perspective is that it gave jobs to women for the very first time in newspapers. And they were called just that, the women's pages. They were segregated in a separate room all by themselves. Uh, They were not allowed into the newsroom. These women made the most of where they were. And because very few male editors read the sections, they could put in there almost whatever they wanted to, and they did. And they had a lot of fun doing it. That was Dr. Kimberly Voss from the University of Central Florida. I recently spoke with Dr. Voss about the section of the newspaper called the Women's Pages, and Marie Anderson, a Women's Page editor who significantly influenced the Women's Pages of the Miami Herald in the 1950s and 1960s. Dr. Voss has more about Marie Anderson. Marie Anderson was a women's page editor. She was a very wealthy woman. To give you an idea, she spent her time during the Great Depression golfing. Her dad was a judge. She was the head of the Junior League. So she brought all of that power to the Miami Herald's women's section. She was able to do things and kind of push the envelope at a time when maybe other editors wouldn't have been quite as progressive. She won so many Penny Missouri Awards, the top awards for the section, that she was retired from the competition. That's just how good she was. She was also very much a mentor to young journalists, uh, to women new to the newsroom. And you can see some of that to this day, the women who she mentored. She also gave all of her papers to the National Women in Media Collection, which has been wonderful for journalists and historians to kind of see what was happening in the kinds of battles that she fought. After World War II, Miami experienced a population boom The women's pages of the Miami Herald also grew, along with the power of Marie Anderson and other female editors. Dr. Voss tells us more about women's pages during this time. For a long time, historians considered the women's pages nothing more than what they called the four Fs, fashion, family, food, and furnishings, or what they also called fluff, as if those things weren't important. But of course, those things are very important, what we eat, our families, what we wear. As the years went by, particularly after World War II, you started to see more hard news in those sections, questions about lack of daycare providers, questions about pay inequity, domestic violence. All those things started to sneak into the women's sections after the war. Prior to the 1970s, the only place women could work in the newspapers was in the women's pages. The genre was once generalized and perceived as society news of little importance. As Dr. Voss explains, in the 1950s and 1960s, As modern feminism emerged, women's pages increasingly reported on topics such as equal rights, reproductive issues, and domestic violence. The very first stories ever in the country about child abuse, for example, appeared in the women's section. Questions about women's roles in society began to appear in the advice columns that were in those sections. Questions about the lack of women in politics, the lack of women in power, in a way that we're still talking about today, you see beginning in the 1950s in the women's sections. Marie Anderson and other female editors transformed the women's pages, but the success of this section ultimately led to its end during the 1970s. What's great about a column is that you get to decide what's news, right? So that was a huge power that Marie wielded. So it was a real questioning of women's roles in society was a big part of what was happening. After achieving all these things and having a real voice for women, they were eliminated in the late 60s and early 1970s. So you had this place for women's voices that suddenly went away. And so the idea was if we got rid of the women's section, these women would then be employed in other parts of the newspaper. And of course, that never happened in reality. The women's section of the Miami Herald empowered Marie Anderson and other women's page editors to report on topics beyond the four Fs. While the women's pages of the Miami Herald continued to discuss food and fashion, 
The section's inclusion of hard news reports about political and social issues helped to redefine women's news. Marie Anderson and many of the women's page editors of that time fought very hard for the women that came after them. What they were doing was helping their communities, helping their newsrooms, and really not doing anything for themselves. It was for who came next. There's a saying in, of historians that well-behaved women seldom make history, but they should be part of that history. They might have been well-behaved, but they made a big difference. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.